Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, hello. Thank you for tuning in to the fall version of Cornerstone Academy 2022 as we study an introduction to systematic theology. Now, over the next 12 weeks, we're going to be studying systematic theology as a specific discipline, and we're going to talk about the differences between systematic theology and other branches of theology and theological study. Uh, we're going to be doing this for 12 weeks, and I'm going to start tonight, and we're going to begin to lay a foundation, talk about how do we define systematic theology, what are some of the basic assumptions of systematic theology, and how does systematic theology differ from other forms of, uh, of theological study. Uh, so I'm going to lay this foundation. I'm going to teach for the next few weeks. And then Jeff Solman, one of our elders, he's going to jump in and he's going he's to add to this study. But it's going to go for 12 weeks during the fall. And we're excited that you've tuned into this. Um, to get us going, I want to ask a question that kind of helps us to differentiate the study of theology from other aspects of the Christian life with regard to thought. Um, so here's the question. Are we students of theology, or are we merely participants in religion? Now, religion has been defined as the belief in and worship of a supernatural power. Religion refers to the system of beliefs and values and practices that one follows. And in the academic world, the study of religion has traditionally come under the broader context of sociology and anthropology, because religion has to do with human practices and beliefs. Now, theology, on the other hand, is not the study of human thoughts and actions. It's the study of God. Theos in the Greek refers to God, while logos refers to the word or the logic. Theology, when you put those two words together, is the study of God. Theology is the logic of God. And with, when you do theology or when you study theology, you're going to focus on the character of God. You're going to focus on the nature of God, the works of God, and the purposes of God. And the, the study of theology, it differs from religion, even the study of religion, because theology helps us to set our minds on things above. It seeks to know God as the foundation of truth and reality and, and everything. And to put this simply, religion focuses on human thoughts and actions, and it can be very broad. But theology focuses on God's thoughts and actions. Now, the term theology is also understood in a broader sense to refer to more than just the study of God alone. We tend to refer to the study of God as theology proper. It's the, it's the highest form of theology. But then there are also other branches, uh, or we might call them categories, uh, such as the doctrine of Scripture, Bibliology, or the doctrine of Christ, Christology, or the doctrine of sin, hamartiology, or even the doctrine of the last things, eschatology. And when you put all of these different types or different categories or different uh, you know, points of focus in our theology, what you're doing there is you're, you're doing systematic theology. And when we think of theology in this way, that's what we're doing, systematic theology. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next 12 weeks. 
Tonight is just an intro to systematic theology and to the source or foundation of that theology. Now, let's do some things that are really important just to get us going in the right direction. Before we begin to address a lot of different aspects of theology, let's talk about the basic definitions and some of the basic assumptions of systematic theology. So, systematic theology is the discipline of reducing the knowledge of God into an organized system. And that's a pretty simple definition. Reducing the knowledge of God into an organized system. Now, let me give you a a bigger, maybe more helpful, more thorough definition. This is from David Wells, who defines this systematic theology in this way. He says, Theology is the sustained effort to know the character, will, and acts of the triune God, as he has disclosed and interpreted those for his people in Scripture. No order that we might know him, I'm sorry, in order that we might know him, learn to think our thoughts after him, live our lives in his world, on his terms, and through our actions to project his truth into our own time and culture. Now, that's a bigger definition, but it's a helpful one. It gives us something of a scope, but it also not only defines theology, but it helps us to understand some of the basic assumptions of theology. Now, some theologians study the history of thoughts on God, and that discipline is known as historical theology. Some theologians study individual books of the Bible and the themes that develop organically as the Bible unfolds, and this discipline is known as biblical theology. There's also the discipline of dogmatic theology. There's something we refer to as exegetical theology. There's even a branch of theology known as natural theology. And some theologians incorporate philosophy and apologetics into their study of God. But the basic assumption of systematic theology is that God has revealed Himself to us in ways that we can observe and organize so that we can apply what He has revealed into our daily lives. Now, that's that's one of the basic assumptions here. God has revealed Himself to us in ways that we can observe and in ways that we can organize those thoughts and ideas that He's revealed about Himself to us so that we can apply what He has revealed in our daily lives, right? So, there's a little bit of a definition. There's a little bit of a basic assumption. But let's try to ask some questions of this. How has God actually revealed Himself to us? Well, Psalm 19 helps us to answer that question. Psalm 19 tells us in verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In other words, creation itself speaks to the existence of God. I've heard it said that God has revealed Himself to us through the book of creation. Perhaps you've you've heard Psalm 19 verse 1 referred to as the book of creation because the heavens declare the glory of God to us. But it's not just Psalm 19 that, that talks about God revealing Himself through the natural world. In Romans 1, we read this in verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them or to us because God has shown it to us. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, we generally refer to this as general revelation. 
And the fact that it is general means that it is limited. We may perceive something of God's power and divine nature through observation of nature, but we learn nothing of His goodness and His holiness and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness, right? So to a limited degree, God has revealed Himself in nature. The order and structure of the cosmos, the intricacy of biological systems, the beauty of nature, the vastness of the night sky, and the awesome power of our natural world that we live in are a testimony to our Creator. But God has not left us to decipher His character in nature from general revelation alone. He has also revealed Himself through His Word. Now, in that same psalm, Psalm 19, and in verse 7, we read this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, we refer to God revealing Himself through the natural world as general revelation, but we refer to the Scriptures as special revelation. God has revealed Himself to us through His written and preserved Word, which includes the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And and like the psalmist says, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the rules, all of this is a reference to the Word of God. Now, when we talk about special revelation, we're talking about the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, but we're also talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, special revelation includes the Word of God, but it also includes the Logos of God, the eternal Word of God. That's what Jesus is referred to, both in John chapter 1, in the prologue to John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's a, that's a, a reference to the Word of God in, in its written form. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews goes on, He has spoken to us by His Son. So the most basic and fundamental assumption of our faith and of our theology is that God has revealed Himself to us both in the created order and more specifically in the person of His Son and in His Holy Word. And this is axiomatic for Christians. This is our starting point. This is the self-evident assumption that all of our reasoning and all of our belief and all of our theologizing rests upon. So naturally, our study in systematic theology begins with a study of Scripture. Now, the Bible is the principal source of systematic theology. That's the second point in our study this evening. Uh, the first point is, what, are the, what is the definition and basic assumption of theology? The second is what, that the Bible is the principal source of systematic theology. The Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments alone constitute the Word of God, which is authoritative and without error in the original writings, and is complete, sufficient, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. Now, that's the statement on the Scriptures from our Cornerstone Statement of Faith. I highly recommend that you spend some time in that definition and think about it, maybe even memorize it for your own edification. 
But this is where we stand because this is the basis of our understanding of how God has revealed himself. The Bible is the principal source of our knowledge of God, our theology. Now, history has a place in helping us to see how doctrine and theology has developed over time. Philosophy, too, has a place in helping us to understand how ideas and human reason have impacted doctrine and theology. But nothing matters more to the faithful and accurate study of theology than God's own Word. No question matters more in this discipline than the question, what does God's Word say about this subject? And as we develop our theological framework, our system of understanding, we must study and seek to understand all that the Bible teaches on various topics so that we can know with certainty what is good and true and beautiful. One New Testament passage that illustrates the importance of God's Word as the foundation of our thinking about God is, comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And it begins with Paul assessing a problem that he sees on the horizon. So here's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of God. He says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And And Paul tells Timothy, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So he gives us this long list of problems. He gives us this long list of character defects that are going to identify the difficulties that come into the church. And he says that one of the sources, one of the reasons for all of these problems and all of these sins is the fact that these individuals have been led astray by their passions, but they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of what is true. Now, R.C. Sproul was fond of saying that theology is unavoidable for every Christian. We naturally attempt to make sense out of what we think and believe about God. So it's not a question of whether we are going to engage in theology. It's a question of whether our theology is sound or unsound. His point is that we're all theologians, but some of us are bad theologians because we base our beliefs on something other than God's Word. We're always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of what is true. But God has given us a book, and He intends that we read it and study it and memorize it and search it and digest it, and as well to organize our thoughts and beliefs by it. Paul actually goes on to tell Timothy that while some are led astray, unable to arrive at a a clear knowledge, he says, but as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now that phrase, sacred writings, is a reference to the the Word of God, the Old Testament, Old Covenant Scriptures. And these, Paul says, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then Paul gives us this incredible statement All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be 
complete and equipped for every good work. So where all these problems are going to come and all these sins might result from our lack of being committed to the Word of God, he says, but as for you, be committed to the Scriptures that you've learned because they have all of these benefits for your life. God's Word is the ground of our understanding. It was breathed out by God and it is profitable in our lives in so many ways. By it, we grow to maturity and become equipped for a life of faith. But God's Word is more than just a book that we study. It's also something that we should delight in. So the Scriptures um, are the basic foundation upon which our theology is built. But let's not make the mistake of assuming that the only reason we have the Scriptures is so that we can learn facts and, and, and obtain knowledge. Knowledge has its place, but knowledge is not enough. We need to learn to delight in the Word of God. And that's going to be our third point in this first introductory uh, lesson, is that we need to learn to delight in God's Word. Psalm 119. It's a beautiful, long psalm, uh, and it's based upon, it's basically built around the Hebrew alphabet. Every section of the psalm um, the, the first line of, of that section, it all starts with a particular letter in the alphabet and it moves all the way through. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a, it's a poem. And that poem is directly related to the Word of God. It starts off this way. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast, he says, by keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. So again, Psalm 19, 119 is a poem, the longest love poem in the Bible, and the object of its love is the Word of the living God. It is a poem of praise to the Word of God, and it is masterfully constructed. The first letter in each line, uh, in each section, starts with a specific letter of the Hebrew alphabet, as I said, and, and it's just this beautifully well-crafted love story, if you will, to the, the Word of God and the God who gave it to us. And I, want, I don't want to read the whole psalm, but I have studied it, and I want to share with you some of the feelings, uh, some of the descriptions that the psalmist gives us about the Word. He, he uses the word delight ten different times, and he talks about his delight in the Word of God. He says, in, my, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I delight in your word more than in all the riches of the world. He says in verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law, your word, is my delight. Now let's just ask the question, do you delight in the word of God? In, in verse 103, he talks about the word being sweet like honey. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste? They're even sweeter than honey to my mouth. God's Word is more satisfying than the best dessert in the world. He uses the word love 18 different times to refer to His love for the law. Oh, how I love your law, He says. It is my meditation all the day. 
In verse 127, he says, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, even above fine gold. He would, he would rather read and obey the commands of God than to have fine gold in his hands. He talks about his joy in the word in verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. So as the psalmist meditates on God's word, he does more than think deep thoughts. He, he feels deeply in his heart. And out of his spirit-inspired pen comes this beautiful poetry. And, and the question that I have is just this. Do we delight in the word of God the way that we should? Psalm 119 explores the depths of delight to be found as one reads and studies and meditates upon and considers the Word of God. This is something that we we may not consider that much, but it's something we need to consider. Psalm 119 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies. And that word blessed means happy. It means fortunate. You could almost substitute the term happy each time you see the word blessed. And if you did, it would read like this. Happy are those whose way is blameless. Happy are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep His testimonies. Happy are those who seek Him with their whole heart. Now, this should sound great to us because we all want to be happy, right? Everyone wants to be happy. We have an incredible number of options available to us, all of them promising to secure that happiness. I did a search online, and I found over 1 billion search results for the phrase, how to be happy. And some of the options included uh, happiness through better mental health, or happiness through better physical health, or happiness through better spiritual health. A lot of hits on happiness through better sex, or better food, or better parties, or better jobs, or better friends, or better lifestyle, or better entertainment, or a better house, a better car, a better spouse. I find it interesting that the common idea is that happiness in our culture is going to be achieved by having more of what we already possess that doesn't make us happy. <laughs> or maybe, maybe not more of it, maybe we just need a bigger one, or a better one, or a newer one. Look, we all want to be happy, and at present, most of, our convinc- most of us are convinced that true happiness is not something we have, but something we must obtain. And yet, the Bible tells us that we are looking in the wrong places. The human longing for joy is something that rests beyond the flesh. It, it rests at the soul level of a man, and therefore, it cannot be satisfied with the temporal things of the world. And this psalm does not offer us happiness based on worldly things. It talks about happiness that comes to those who delight in and walk according to the Word of God. So maybe in the, well, it's not maybe, in the pursuit of our happiness, we need to fix into our hearts and minds that happiness is going to come not just through a knowledge of God that we obtain in Scripture, but actually a relationship with God that we obtain through our knowledge that, that, that comes from God's Word and just a delight in knowing our God. True happiness, lasting joy, comes when we are reunited with our Creator to have a relationship with Him. And that's what the Word of God is guiding us to. The Word of God is not simply a textbook. It's not a a dictionary of terms. The Word of God is helping us to understand the story of the world. It's helping us to understand the God who has created us. It's helping us to understand what has gone wrong in our world and in our hearts, and then showing us what God has done to, to right those wrongs. 
It's showing us what God has done in sending his son to to live for us and to die for us um, so that we can be saved from our sin and restored in our relationship to the Lord. And that's why delighting in the word of God is so important because it, it doesn't just give us answers. It helps us to know the God who loves us. Now, Let's get back to some of the phrases that we see here. Uh, the phrase, his testimonies, it's a reference to, the, to what God has said and revealed about himself. Happy are those who seek his testimonies. Happy are those who walk according to these things. So happiness ultimately is going to come from a relationship with God. But we can also find happiness in walking in this world in a way that we know pleases God, in a way that we know God has written out for us. Verse 4 tells us that you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, and there is joy and happiness even to be found in following the law of God. But there's a shift, right? Maybe you didn't notice it. Maybe it was subtle. But there's a shift from verses 1 through 3 that spoke of the blessing that God's Word holds out to everyone. And then in verse 4, the psalmist begins to address God directly, and he says, you have commanded You have commanded these things. God has brought the full weight of his authority into being by declaring what he requires of us. And that doesn't shift the delight of the psalmist, but he helps us to understand that it makes us happy, but it also gives us direction. In his word, God has made it clear that we are the creatures and he is the creator. He is the lawgiver and we are subjects uh, subject to his commands. And this poses a problem for many of us because, like, like we learn in the Scriptures, we've all fallen short. We've all sinned and failed to keep His law diligently. Our sinful desires have caused us to transgress the law of God. Our rebellious nature has driven us to deny God's authority and rule. But in order to help us understand, God tells us what has gone wrong. And to do that, He tells us a story. He doesn't just you know, give us a definition. He tells us a story. And the story begins in the garden where God and man were at peace. And then rebellion entered through Adam and Eve. That rebellion spread to all of us and separation from God resulted. And yet God, in His mercy and in His purposes and plans, He sent His Messiah. He promised the Messiah to come. And then He sent His Messiah into the story. And Jesus came and lived and died and rose again so that we could have a right relationship with God restored. And God could have simply left us to our fate, right? He could have locked us out in the cold, but he chose to reach out to us. And in his mercy, he called us to himself. He spoke so that we could hear. And in his word, his voice can still be heard. And so God has preserved his word for us to study it God has preserved His Word so that we can know Him through it. God has preserved His Word so that we can know the the right way of salvation, and we can share that with the world, and that we, as those who have been changed by God's grace, can continue to be changed by this Word so that we can live for God, so that we can serve Him, so that we can grow in our relationship to Him and know the promises that He has given to us. And so we should delight in the Word of God for all of these reasons. And we should declare the Word of God for all of these reasons. And we should study the Word of God for all these reasons. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, all of these phrases refer to the voice of God speaking to His people. 
They refer to His Word, and His Word is perfect. His Word revives the soul. His Word is sure, making us wise. His Word is right and pure and clean and true and righteous, and it endures forever. Sinclair Ferguson has written, Scripture is like a working museum of which the Spirit is the curator, showing us around and explaining the wonders of the mind of the Maker. And in this museum, we are taken behind the scenes to learn from God Himself. In growing to know God, therefore, there is no substitute for the discipline of Bible study and Scripture reading and meditation. In growing to know God, I'm going to repeat that, Therefore, there is no substitute for the discipline of Bible study and Scripture reading and meditation. We cannot bypass the handbook God has given to us and then expect that we can know Him in our own way. The only God we can know in our own way is a God that we make in our own image. Close quote. So we cannot bypass the handbook of God and expect that we can know Him. We cannot attempt to do the important work of theology without our greatest teacher front and center. Now, as a church, we affirm that the Bible is the Word of God, trustworthy, inerrant, sufficient, and true. And as Christians, we affirm that God has spoken to us and that He still speaks to us through His Word. So if we want to be good theologians, we must be committed to God's Word. But I have this question as a, as a concluding thought. How many of us fall short of reading and studying and meditating on God's Word as we should? If all of these things are true about the Word of God, which I believe they are, and we as a church believe they are, if all these things are true, then how many of us could do more in our commitment to the Word of God to study it and read it and meditate on it, memorize it, share it with our children, all of those things? Let's be a people who don't just study the Word of God so that we can learn facts about God, but who study the Word of God deeply and delight in it in all that it presents to us. Thank you for tuning in for this first introduction to systematic theology. We look forward to studying this with you for the next 12 weeks. Thank you.